Wake up with Patty Catter. I love the show. I never miss an episode. It's the best. I turn it on and turn it up. Hello, everybody. You're listening to and watching Wake Up with Patty Catter. Today, I have a very special guest on the show. We have Steve Berkowitz on the show today. So, Steve, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Patty. I'm excited. Let's do this. I am excited too. So Steve, you are a producer of many shows that go into many family homes across the U.S. and across the world, probably. Um, So Steve, could you just highlight some of your shows? Because there are so many. The first one that jumps out to me is the Extreme Home Makeover show. Um, But I'd like you to tell our listeners some of the shows that you've worked on because there's just a lot. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So I specialize in reality television, or I like to call it unscripted television. So yes, I did a couple seasons on Extreme Makeover Home Edition, the original version on ABC. I did the Rachel Zoe Project, which is what this background is from. This was on the Rachel Zoe Project season five, the Louis Vuitton show um, in uh, Paris Fashion Week. Um, I did a show called Pros versus Joes uh, several years ago for Spike, where um, it was Pro athletes taking on average Joes. That was insane. We had some of the biggest pro athletes in the world in that one. Um, I did a show called Battle Bots for ABC, which was the biggest robot competition show in the world. And that was a lot of fun. I did a show called Outdaughtered. I was the executive producer on that. That's for TLC and that is still running. And that is a show about quintuplets in Texas. Uh, There's six kids in that family. So five little girls, five quintuplets, five girls. Girls, and then uh, these mom and uh, mom and dad have to deal with that, and that's a it's an amazing family. I did Friday Night Tykes about a youth football league in Texas, which, as you can imagine, is pretty wild. Um, I did some other like crazy shows like Miss Rap Supreme for VH1 and My Antonio, where we tried to find love for Antonio Sabato Jr. Mm -hmm. I did the 50 Cent Project where 50 Cent was giving out business advice. Yeah, I did some like really ridiculous shows. And then I did some like heartwarming, you know, really heartfelt, like great shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition. So my experience <laughs> runs the gamut. Uh, most recently, I did a really fun show called uh, the, uh, the Sims Sparked um, for TBS, um, which is in conjunction with EA. And so it, it was like a gaming competition show uh, where we, we utilized The Sims. I don't know if you're familiar with The Sims. I'm sure yeah. some people in your audience are. Yeah, it was a blast. And we had contestants who are experts in The Sims from around the world. And they came together and they competed in a bunch of challenges. And so that was earlier in 2020. Um, And now I am currently on a hidden, something I can't talk about. I'm on a Netflix series um, that's going to be a lot of fun and that'll come out in uh, 2021. That is so exciting. I think, I don't think my smile could probably get any bigger right now because just the more that you kept going, the more I'm like, yes, I love that. Um, You know, I work very hard. So when I have downtime, I like to watch both, um, heartwarming shows, but then I love 50 Cent. So (laughs) I'm a good mix. I think my audience is too. Um, Steve, I would love it if you could tell our audience just a little bit about your childhood and how you grew up because we're all wondering how, you know, how you came about into being this really great producer that you are. 
Well, thank you. Uh, yes. And so reality television is a little interesting. And I like to talk, you know, I always talk to my friends who are in the industry about how, how did you come to get into this wild world of unscripted? Because you don't go to college and go, hey, I want to be a reality TV producer. We all generally either go into communications or go into film. I went a very non-traditional path. You know, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was a big sports fan, like a lot of people from Midwest. I played football and basketball, and then I went to college um, at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, which is a, a very, you know, a very good school in the Midwest. Um, and I played football. Yes, I know, small person, but I played Division Three football, and so I always had a passion for sports, and I ended up you know, going down a path of sports journalism, you know, I had that dream, like lots of people to be the, the sideline reporter, or the, you know, the anchor. And so that was kind of the path that I chose was being a sports anchor reporter. And so I ended up in those tiny little towns like Johnstown, Pennsylvania and Morgantown, West Virginia and Bristol, Tennessee. So I was that guy for about four and a half years, right after I graduated from college, you know, reporting, sh reporting, shooting, producing, writing, anchoring local sports, you know, I mean, we're talking high school football, high school basketball, girls volleyball, NASCAR, I, I shot some Pittsburgh Steelers, I got to cover West Virginia University, I covered Penn State. Uh, so in a lot of ways, it prepared me for reality television, because it was unscripted. Um, and it's a lot of hustling, a lot of working on your own and doing and learning the basics of storytelling. Um, but you make no money. <laughs> You're working in tiny towns and you really are making very little money. And so I did that for about four and a half years and I traveled to three different stations and I was about 27 and I really was at that point, you know, you make those key decisions in your life. And I kind of had that moment of like, okay, like my dream is to like get to a big city, work in something really big, be something bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend out in LA who was working for Fox Sports gave him a call and he was like, look, man, just come out here. Just come on out. We'll find something for you. And so I did that thing that so many people do. Mm -hmm. I packed up every single thing I could in my Ford Escort, which was <laughs> a piece of junk. And I drove all the way out to LA. And I remember leaving on the 4th of July. It was my Independence Day. And I was really lucky because my friend, Michael Hughes, who I'd gone to college with, he had sent my resume around town and uh, ESPN at the time, this was 2004, was dipping their toe into reality television. If you can recall around 2004, everybody was really starting to jump on board with reality TV and ESPN was dipping their toe in that and they needed an associate producer, someone who could shoot, do interviews, right? And do a little bit of editing. Well, those were the things I had been training for basically the last four and a half years as a small town sports guy. So I literally got a call. I think I was in Utah. Like, and, and I consider <laughs> myself very fortunate. Some people would say lucky because as if you've ever done the drive out to LA, you lose service. You know, like there's a period of time where you lose service. And I was really lucky because that call came through. I'm driving, you know, I'm driving through on the way out, and they're like, hey, can you come to LA? like in two days interview. And if you, you know, if we like you, you'll get the job because we're starting like basically through Utah. And if you've ever done that drive, you know, there's a dead zone. And I'm very fortunate. Some would say lucky that a call from a producer who was working on this ESPN show 
uh, you know, needed an associate producer, got the call, literally drove straight to LA, changed clothes in like a, it was like a gas station slash, you know, some place that had, you know, a restroom. And I didn't even know what do you wear at an LA interview for a producer? All I'd ever interviewed for, right, was a reporter job or an anchor job where you wear a suit. So I threw on all I had, you know, my clothes are all stacked up. So I threw on a suit. Yeah. Well, this office is in Santa Monica, California, very laid back. People are, you know, it's summer, right? Mm -hmm. People are in t-shirts, shorts, flip-flops and in walks this guy, right? In a suit. And all these eyeballs look at me. They think it's like an FBI agent (laughs) or an accountant, you know, walking in. And I was very embarrassed, but I pulled it together walked in, interviewed for the job. And they all, I think that the guy who I interviewed with, the co-executive producer kind of got a kick out of it. Mm -hmm. And he was also from the Midwest. He was from Indianapolis and I was from Ohio. And I think we connected and I got the job and I started, I think like three or four days later, enough time for me to find a place to live. And I just very, I feel very fortunate. And then I kind of been rolling in unscripted ever since then. So that was kind of the beginning of the journey. Um, and you know, I kind of fell in love with reality pretty much right away. Um, so one of my listeners wrote and asked me to ask you if when you were making the extreme home makeover show, if there was ever a time that you cried because she cried every time she watched that show. (laughs) Yes, that's a, it's a good question. And yes. So my job on extreme makeover home edition was to be the, my key job was to be the interviewer. So when your listener was watching and crying, I was the person asking those questions on the other end. And so <laughs> when the mom or dad was crying, I was usually crying with them. So I was usually asking the question and also crying. I think the important thing to remember is that you know we were going on an emotional journey with those families. Um, I always say that, you know, that was a show where we worked extra hard producer, whether you were a producer, whether you, you know, a story producer or a design producer, um, or whether you were one of the contractors or one of the thousand volunteers that showed up to help build those houses, you worked extra hard. You stayed late, you got there early because you cared about these families. And that was the beauty of that show. And so, yeah, like I, I distinctly remember um, you know, sitting across from a woman with stage four cancer and bawling my eyes out. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was an emotional show and you, you, uh, you put everything you had into it. Mm -hmm. Um, you were, it was, a you know, I did, I remember at the end of season eight, just being completely exhausted. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I've watched several of those episodes and, um, they were very touching and I can imagine that would be really, really draining. Um, Oh, wow. So um, what is one of the most fun times you've ever had as a producer? The most fun times. Mm -hmm. Um, I can honestly say, so like, I think, you know, fun is a, is a good question. And like, I look back on certain shows or certain moments as fun. So oddly enough, like for me, um, 
like certain shows were fun for different reasons and people would say you're crazy, but like, <laughs> I really enjoyed, I did a show called Miss Rap Supreme for VH1. And I think that was 2007. And it was literally, we were searching for the next great female rapper. And this was, you know, way prior to, uh, you know, a Nicki Minaj, right? Like mm-hmm. way earlier than that. And we did not find the next great female <laughs> rapper. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we announced a winner, but mm-hmm. we certainly did not find one. But I love, you know, I love hip hop, which is probably mm-hmm. shocking. But I do. I grew up kind of on Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and, yes, and, that, and Tupac. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and it was really fun. It was like my first house reality show. If you remember, that was the period 2007, like really 2003 to 2010. It's like, you know, top, the top model era mm-hmm. and everybody was doing house shows. Like literally like that was kind of the idea, just put people in a house and figure out what to compete for. And so that was my first one. And I remember just being fascinated, sitting in the control room, watching, you know, just watching all these people. And I would stay late at night and I loved the performances, even though they weren't the best rappers. And we had, but we had like uh, Too Short on as, as a guest and MC Search was the host. Um, and it was just like, it was a fun, like you use the word fun and that was a fun experience. I love some of those people I work with, I worked with on that show are still friends of mine today. Um, people who, um, you know, the, Sasha Jenkins, who's now a, uh, an award-winning filmmaker. He was the, one of the co-creators of that show and he's still a friend of mine and I've collaborated with him on a project recently. So there was something really special about that show that I take with me. To today and I couldn't really put a finger on it for you like mm-hmm. why um Will I Am was one of the guest uh guest stars on it I think it was just the fact that it was my first like house reality show and I had like great teachers on that show like Jody Baskerville who's now co-executive producer on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and she was just a wonderful teacher for me um I think um, in terms of other like fun things like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, um, I always remember we did a we did a demo where you you know you demolish the house right, Mm -hmm. and we did one. We were in South Carolina. It was a a military family right, and we decided we were going to blow up the house. Okay, (laughs) that was that was the way we were going to demolish the house, and. So I had this idea that we would do like an homage to a few good men. So <laughs> I wrote like this whole skit where Ty Pennington, you know, the host of the show and all the designers from that episode, Ty was going to play the role of Jack Nicholson. And I wrote this like little speech for him where he would say, you know, like, you know, he like, you need me on this wall. You need me on this demo. You know, like he did, he played this role brilliantly. I'm not really explaining it as well as I could, but it was so funny. And every, like, like he had to do it so many times because he kept laughing or someone kept laughing and we ended up blowing it up and like, it was hysterical. And I, I remember just like those de- demolition days were really long and it was very tedious and safety was always the big thing. So it would take many hours to shoot those, but you know, we loved it because everyone was just laughing and cracking up. And I remember just that that was one of my fondest memories from from that show i that think is, that is great i have a lot of military listeners who i'm sure just love that story yeah and de- the the father was in afghanistan 
um, for that episode. And so for him to be able to see it, you know, we kind of, we figured out a way for him to be able to see it and he was cracking up and all of his buddies <laughs> were cracking up. Um, the Rachel Zoe project, it's funny, you know, I have that back there. Um, I have the background in Paris. Um, that really was for me. I had never been to Paris. Right. And to do shows for Chanel um, and Louis Vuitton with someone like Rachel Zoe and, you know, seeing, uh, you know, Karl Lagerfeld and all these other big names there. I mean, I, first of all, before that show, I mean, I didn't know who any of these people were. I didn't know what Louis Vuitton was. <laughs> I didn't know who Marc Jacobs was. <laughs> I, started, I mean, my joke is that before I started that show, you know, my good friend, Derek Wan, who was the executive producer, I was the supervising producer and the director on that show. And Derek looked at me and he go, he said to me, I'm going to, he goes, take out your credit card and just go to Nordstrom's and ask one of the people, like, give them your credit card <laughs> and buy like $2,000 worth of clothes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and because I just didn't have those types of clothes, you know, we were about to go at that point, we were about to go to New York Fashion Week. And then we pretty much went straight to Paris Fashion Week. Um, and so I remember Paris Fashion Week as being this like eye opening world for me as a guy who had never really even thought about fashion. And the funnier, funniest part for me, I don't speak French. And trying to communicate with my French camera operator, um, like the the French, if you've ever been to Paris, like they enjoy their downtime. And so our French operators, not only did they smoke, but the moment I would say, okay, cut, they would drop their cameras and start smoking immediately. <laughs> wow. Like immediately. And then I would be like, guys, like I didn't mean like, like we're wrapped for the day. Like I just meant like cut, like, like we're down for a few seconds. Like, but they, the, like I, my joke was just that like they would smoke like immediately and they thought like, Oh, we have 20 minutes. And I, I meant like we have a minute. Um, and the funniest part was that, I mean, I had to communicate with them by just kind of like, well, okay, like zoom. I would basically have to kind of, show them what I wanted because on walkie they really didn't understand what I was saying. They, a lot of them had worked uh, for CNN or, or MSNBC or some news. So they knew some basics, but like if I told was, was telling them to push in on something, they didn't understand it. So zoom and tilt, right? So zoom and tilt <laughs> understood. But if I deviated from those basic terms, forget about it. Oh boy. <laughs> and when we got to like the Louis Vuitton show or the Chanel show, it was loud and packed. And, you know, I would get excited and I would, I would start to like, I was trying to, to talk over the crowd. And so I, I was yelling and Derek, you know, the showrunner would get on walking and he would tell me, you know, they can't understand you. So the louder you yell, it doesn't help. You're just blowing out our eardrums. So, oh no. <laughs> yeah, so it was but but it was a fantastic experience. And mm -hmm. for me, you know, being a kid from Cincinnati, Ohio, to be working in Paris was again like something I could is a bucket list thing. 
Right. That's huge. I'm from Michigan. I can totally relate. We're in that same area. Um, so what is one trial you've had through whatever it is through your whole life, one trial that you've had and how have you overcome that trial? Sure. So when I was a sports broadcaster, sports anchor reporter, mm-hmm. um, well, really, so I'll easier for me just to kind of go big picture here. So mm-hmm. I am an epileptic. Mm-hmm. Um, I have epilepsy. Um, it started when I was 14. Um, so I was a freshman in high school and it, you know, I would have a handful of seizures, um, you know, one or two a year, I was put on medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of always, it was for, you know, a lot of epileptics, it's out of control and medication is really their only hope to control it. Um, for me, the medication was worked. Okay. Um, I had to maintain stress levels. I had to sleep well, I had to eat well. Um, but when I became a broadcaster, it was certainly, you know, I really had to take care of myself mm-hmm. and I was in Tennessee and I was like 26, 27. And for whatever reason, you know, we all kind of, who knows why it got really out of control. And I had four seizures over the course of like six months. And that was really unusual. I mean, usually I was having about one a year where I was over, I was stressed, didn't sleep well, maybe forgot a dose. This was really unusual to have four over the course of six months. And I lost my job as a broadcaster. And that was really the kind of moment where I had to kind of figure out, okay, well, what am I, you know, how do I look at my epilepsy? How do I treat this disease that I have? And I found a doctor who, you know, because here I'll, this is not something that that I talk about a lot or that's easy for me to talk about. Mm -hmm. I think when you have anything like that in your life, right. uh, You can look at it a couple ways, right. Uh, you can take it head on and you take it seriously, or you can kind of look at it and go, um, Oh, I'm okay. I'll I'll do the bare minimum Mm -hmm. and it's fine. I just want to be normal. And I think because I got it when I was a freshman in high school and as anybody, you know, understands, you just want to be normal. You just want to be like everybody else. And then when you go to college, same thing, you want to be able to have beers with your friends. You want to be able to play sports and you want to be able be just one, you know, just like everybody else. And so I think, and then even when I became a sports, you know, sports reporter, sports anchor, I didn't want anything to inhibit me. So Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly being a hundred percent truthful to say that I took care of myself um, during those years. And so I think it took me to lose my job to really go, you know what, you're an adult now, and this is a serious thing. And I think then have, finding a new doctor when I was 27, getting on new medication, um, and really deciding, making that decision in my life to take care of myself, take the disease seriously. And, you know, I was 27, then, you know, turned 28 when I moved to LA. Um, you know, I've had one seizure since then. Wow. So, that's yeah. Amazing. So, yeah. So that, you know, and that was 2003 when I had my little, t- t- yeah. 2003 when I had my last one. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, again, I feel very fortunate that I found a doctor that gave me, you know, put me on the right medication. But I also look at that, you know, to your point about how did I overcome it? I think that we all have those seminal moments in our lives where you have to make a decision mentally and physically 
and go, okay, you know what? Like I'm going to take something seriously or I'm going to change my mindset about Mm -hmm. something in my life. And for me, I started to look at that disease in a different way. I started to take it seriously and say, it's a part of me and it's going to be here forever. And I'm either going to continue to let it, you know, control me or I'm going to take it seriously and I'm going to make sure that I take my medicine. I'm going to make sure I take care of my body, take care of myself, you know, physically. Um, And so I've done that. I think Mm -hmm. I've done that. Um, I had one little bad, you know, bad misstep, but other than that, you know, um, I think I take my, take good care of myself and, you know, I try and talk to other people who have epilepsy and, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's something, it, it, it took me, um, it's unfortunate, right. That it took, it took that big event for me to take it seriously. But I think, and I tell this to other people with epilepsy that, you know, we all kind of, you know, want to just be like everybody else, but you got, you're not, you know, like you are, we are like everybody else, but you have to take it seriously. You have to make sure you take medicine. You have to make sure that you take care of yourself. And so, um, so yeah, like that, that was, I I think, you know, I, you know, we all kind of have that cross to bear. We have that big obstacle that we have to overcome. And um, I think for me, it's, it it actually was like, it's not going to go away. Like, I think I always thought, okay, well, I'll outgrow it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're not like you can't, you have to, every day you got to take it seriously. And so, yeah, for for me, that's, that's the obstacle. You know, I'm really glad that you shared that because I know off the top of my head, at least a dozen veterans who listen to my show who have epilepsy, they've had traumatic brain injuries, which triggered epilepsy. My husband being one of them. Um, Yeah. My husband was um, severely injured in combat in 2007 and um, he had had seizures ever since it's under control with medication, but he also had to take that big step in taking care of his health. And it's not always easy. I commend you at 27 years old for taking control of your health then, because that's really young, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, and then, you know, I commend your, your, your husband for his service and, and yeah, I mean, it's, I always say like, it's one of those diseases that specifically it's, it's, it's tough because you're so vulnerable when you fall mm-hmm. and when you're in that situation. Um, and a lot of times for most people, you wake up and you don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just feel specifically for someone like who's in the military and you're, you're the pride of, of being physical and of what you do. Uh, and I played sports. And so I was always embarrassed when I would fall. And then, you know, I didn't want people to, to like feel bad for me and feel sorry for me. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big thing for me to overcome was like feeling that, okay, you know, I would tell whether it was my girlfriend or tell my friends like, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. And it, it was a big thing for me to overcome to say, okay, well, it's not about being fine. It's about taking care of me. It's about taking care of myself because I want to be able to focus on work. I want right. to be able to focus on my career. And so, I, you know, I, that would be the thing that I say is like, it has nothing to do with being vulnerable. You know, that's okay. It has all to do with taking care of you so that then you can focus on your career and your family and your loved ones. Because unless you're healthy, you can't. And so that was like, that for me was the big thing. Right. Wow. That's amazing. I had no idea. Um, That was not in your bio, the biography, Steve. (laughs) 
It's not something that I like advertise. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not something I advertise, but I do think that, you know, those are the types of things. I mean, you asked the question, what obstacle? And I think those things shape you. Absolutely. Um, and, and I will say this. So on Extreme Makeover Home Edition, you know, when you interview those people, when you interview a family, whether they're dealing with, um, a de- you know, a house that burned down in a fire, right? Or you're dealing with a family, a mom who has stage four cancer, they're dealing with something, right? An obstacle, just call it whatever you want, an obstacle. And the only way to really connect with them is to, to understand that we all have obstacles, right? Yes. And mine is not nearly as bad, right? As, as what they're dealing with. But I understand what I was dealing with mentally and emotionally, and I can connect with mm-hmm. those people. Mm-hmm. And that is ultimately anytime I sit down with somebody, whether, you know, I'm doing a documentary, I can't really talk too much about it, but it is about people who suffered, people who um, suffered and overcome obstacles. And so when I talk to them, I go into that mindset about mm-hmm. the obstacles I've been through. Because I mean, again, it's like, and you interview people all the time. You have to connect with them. You have mm-hmm. to be able to be sensitive and be empathetic in order to have an interview that is efficient, that is effective. And I think I would not have been um, a good producer on Extreme Makeover Home Edition had I not had something that I had gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that, I'll always remember that interview um, in North Carolina with, um, her name was Trisha Creasy, and she's since passed, but she was teacher of the year. She was a wonderful human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had stage four cancer. And I, I will always say that was the best interview I ever did. And I had, you know, it was that I'd had that seizure, that one seizure um, that I've had since I got on the right medication. And it was, a, it was a slip up. I had forgotten my medication and you know, partied too much that weekend, but I'd had it recently. And I remember sitting down with her not too long after that, a couple months after that. And she, you know, we sat down and I put all my questions away and I put my computer away and we just sat there and had a conversation about all she's been through and what this house meant to her. And she was leaving behind three daughters and her husband. And we bawled for two hours straight and it was the best interview I've ever done. But I don't think I could have done that had I not just been through what really was a tough experience for me because it was the first time in many years that I was like, ah, oh, this thing is still with me. Mm-hmm. Like it's not going to go away. Like I can't forget my medication for a weekend. You know, I can't go with the guys and have a weekend and let my guard down. I, mm-hmm. I have to be on point every single day. Mm-hmm. Right. Your story is really encouraging. A lot of my listeners have different obstacles in their life and it always is encouraging to hear somebody who's overcome their obstacle because it gives us all hope. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for sharing some of your story with me. I can't wait to hear about your secret mission you're working on um, (laughs) when we're able to talk about it. (laughs) Anytime. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Um, is there a website our listeners can go to to kind of follow you or do you are you interacting in social media at all right now? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have a podcast where I do talk mm-hmm. about unscripted television or reality TV. It's no script, no problem. Um, and you can listen to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Luminary, anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
Um, so, and that, you know, if you do like reality television or you like, you know, unscripted or documentaries, I really do go in depth. So that is great. If you do like those types of shows, um, I do have a website that is a, it's a blog. Um, but I do post a lot about shows that I do. Um, it's called the Burke report. So it's, it's my name, B E R K report. Dot com. So it's Burke Report. And, you know, on Twitter, it's just at Steve Berkowitz. So yeah. I love it. I love it. And I'm going to check out your podcast and we're going to be sure to link it in the notes so that anybody listening can go to your podcast and take a listen. Um, thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you for sharing your story. I know it's not always easy to do that and yeah. it's important. So I appreciate that. Thank, thank you. you Patty. You're welcome. And everybody, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in every Friday on your podcast platforms, as well as 18 different radio stations across the U.S., Amazon TV and Roku. Thank you all. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to Wake Up with Patty Catter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Follow Patty at Patty Catter on Facebook and Instagram. Get social. You can now watch Wake Up with Patty Catter on Amazon TV and Roku. It's the only podcast I listen to. Be sure to check out Patty's apparel line, The Patriotic Mermaid at thepatrioticmermaid.com and on social media at The Patriotic Mermaid. I love it. Special thanks to Patty's content creator, Elise. Alicia Thompson. Thanks for all that you do. Visit ThompsonCreate.com for all your marketing and design inquiries.